We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. Connecticut's path to ratification was decidedly more smooth than some of the other states. While there would be debate, and the final vote would not be unanimous, the entire process reflected the character of Connecticut in a way perhaps no other process had. Overshadowing Connecticut's debate, the Federalist Papers turned away from the subject of the problems with the Confederacy and the ills that face the nation and the need for union to the more detailed arguments as to why certain provisions in the proposed Constitution are so important and, consequentially, beneficial to the nation. The anti-federalists naturally turn to those same provisions as dangers to the liberties of the people. So who is right? Can both sides be correct? There was never any serious doubt that Connecticut was going to ratify the Constitution. The only real question was how quickly and whether or not it would be unanimous or not. As it turned out, it was not unanimous, nor was it the quickest one involved. But Connecticut did, in the mid part of January, become the fifth state to ratify the Constitution. In doing so, that sort of put the the numbers over the half. By five of, uh, if you recall, the requirement was nine states had to ratify for it to become uh, official. Connecticut was uh, somewhat celebrated as the fifth state, and this was exciting because they were halfway to the goal, more than halfway to the goal. Of course, the reality was much different, and that was that it couldn't be just nine states that ratified it. There had to be all of them, or it just wasn't going to work. But for the purposes of uh, celebration, I suppose, Connecticut being the fifth state to ratify was a significant milestone. It was, however in keeping with, I guess, the, the best traditions of Connecticut. When you think of Connecticut today, what do you think of? What do you know about Connecticut? I, I had the honor of being stationed in Connecticut for about three months. I went to submarine school at New London, uh, which was, um, and, I, and I went in the dead of winter, uh, right there on the Thames River, New London with the Thames River flowing through it. Uh, it was some of the most beautiful country and most representative of the Northeast that I had ever seen in my life. I, I still can close my eyes and see the trees up on the hill, the snow-covered hills with the frozen Thames River below it, and I can also feel the sting of that water as we were in the 
uh, damage control trainer when they were pumping the water right out of the Thames River into there uh, to simulate how cold North Atlantic water really could be. It's a beautiful state, but what do we really think about when we think about Connecticut? Anybody? Connecticut has long held this reputation, particularly in the colonial era and into the revolutionary era, of being a very, I, the best word I can come up with is mellow state, as if nothing really excites one way or the other Connecticut and, and the people who live there. All the way back to their, their colonial days, Connecticut was considered to be one of the most stable and one of the most uninteresting, I guess, in a way, uh, states that there was. It was quiet, well-managed, and when they did have arguments, they settled them the way that perhaps we all wish we could, which was they held a vote of the people and the people decided which way were they going to go, and that's the way they went. Even into the Revolutionary Era, and if you think back to the convention, there was a moment in the convention where things got really, really heated. And a comment was made by one of the delegates to Oliver Ellsworth, the Connecticut delegate, that Connecticut just, you know, really hadn't done its part to support the revolution. And in so many ways, it was born out of that mellowness of Connecticut. And if you recall, Ellsworth just uh, screamed to his feet and went right to George Washington and, and you know, demanded that George Washington, the president of the convention, uh, suppress or, or counter this, this slanderous comment. And of course, George Washington said nothing. He didn't want to get involved in such an argument as that. The truth of the matter is, however, Connecticut was very engaged in the revolution. But again, you don't think about it because there was no fire branding in Connecticut. It wasn't a hotbed of revolutionary f uh, fever. But at the same time, they approached the revolution virtually the same way they approached everything else in Connecticut. They held a big, they, they had a big convention in essence. They, they basically put it before the people and the people elected a governor who was anti-revolution in, in, in the early part of the 1700s. They didn't, he didn't really want to get involved with this thing and they wanted to maintain the peace and so they elected a, a pro-British government in Connecticut. Well, this upset a, a significant number of people in Connecticut, who, but they went along with it because that's what the people wanted. Well, eventually this governor died and so they had to have another election, and this time they elected a pro-revolutionary government in Connecticut. And so Connecticut said, that's it, we're, now we're pro-revolution. And they began to support the revolutionary efforts, and all through the war they sent troops and, and participated. But there just never was this outstanding moment where you can point to a moment in Connecticut history and go, yep, see what they did? Although, if you go to the Connecticut history sites, which I would recommend that you do at some point, they're very proud of their service, and they're very proud of what they did. And even into the convention, I, I said at the start, I opened by saying there was never any doubt that Connecticut was going to ratify the convention. And why do I say that? Well, there's a very simple reason. Connecticut was, um, in, in essence, hoisted on their own petard in a way. They had to, Connecticut really had no choice but to ratify the Constitution for one simple reason. The entire convention hinged on one compromise, primarily one compromise, which was the great compromise that resulted in the fact that, you know, we had equal representation in the Senate and proportional representation in the, in the House. Well, that compromise, while we refer to it somewhat 
oddly as the Great Compromise, was actually named the Connecticut Compromise. It actually came from Ellsworth and Sherman of Connecticut. The Connecticut proposed this alignment of, of the House and the, and the Senate, and therefore, if any one state was, I guess, most responsible for the final outline of the Constitution, you'd have to argue that Connecticut was it. So for them to reject it would have been strange in, in so many ways. And so Connecticut did what it always did. Each town elected delegates, each town elected, each uh, area sent these delegates to it. The, there was some 160 delegates or so to the Connecticut Convention. And there was some debate in the convention, but not a lot. I think if I've learned anything in this, following this ratification process, you know, I, I, I go back to the, to the convention and I'm still amazed at how much I didn't know about how the Constitution came into being. And if you haven't listened to the, con to the convention shows, I wish you would, uh, you'll be amazed as well. When it comes to the ratification, however, what I am finding is utterly amazing is the complete lack of documentation of what went on at these ratifying conventions. In some cases, we have absolutely nothing. In some cases, we have fragmentary records. In some cases, all we have are newspaper articles uh, from, the, from the era and, and op-eds. And in some places, we have complete and, and total stories. Pennsylvania, New York, those places, we have wonderful stories and, and records of all this. But in some places, it's like, write it down. Why, why would we do that? And so when we come to Connecticut, even though we all knew we were going to ratify, Connecticut was going to ratify, the records are once again very fragmentary, very limited, and sadly, I think, given the, the vote in Connecticut, which was approximately 120 to, to 40, don't hold me to those numbers, I don't have them right in front of me right at the moment, but the, 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 it was roughly 120 to, to 40 out of the 160. There was some uh, anti-constitutional uh, concerns, and those concerns were obviously addressed because some of the fragments that we have from Connecticut address those issues. And it's intriguing because it's almost parallel to the same time frame that the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers shifted their arguments from whether or not uh, a union was necessary or whether or not the Confederation was going to fail to more specific items within the Constitution. Particularly, they shifted to uh, the anti-federalist position shifted to the idea of the standing army being a threat to liberty, as Cato will say in his letter this week. And the Federalist Papers shifted to a more esoteric debate, not so much about standing armies as about national defense and foreign policy in, in a broader scale. And if you had to really argue down or melt down or boil down the two different arguments, the, the, the anti-federalist position is very specific. We don't like this specific thing, in this particular case, the standing armies. In the case of the Federalist Papers, Hamilton, Jay, and Madison, they take a much more broad-minded approach. Look, you're worried, about, you're worried about a standing army being a threat to liberty. We're worried about the threats to the nation, the existential threats to the nation, many of which we don't even know about yet. The, the libertarian or anti-federalist position is there are no threats. Sam Adams, we're, we're living in perfect peace right now. There's no threat. There's no danger to us. They tend to downplay 
any foreign dangers to the United States, whereas the Federalist Papers, are, and the Federalists are going to take the argument that there's so many dangers out there that you can't even count them, and we don't even know what they'll be next week, let alone 100 years from now, which is why we need to do it this way. Which is why it's intriguing to me when, when we look at the Connecticut debate. Again, there's not a lot of records here, but Oliver Ellsworth did deliver a speech uh, in the early part of the debate, in fact, when it opened on January 4th, he delivered a, an opening address. And in his address, he didn't talk about the need necessarily for the union. He didn't, he didn't outline those things. In fact, what he said was, and I'll read this to you, it's just a paragraph. Uh, Mr. President, it's observable that there's no preface to the proposed Constitution, but it evidently presupposes two things. One, the necessity of a federal government, the other is the insufficiency, the inefficacy of the old Articles of Confederation. The union is necessary for the purpose of dot dot dot, number one, national defense. Um, united we are strong, he writes, divided we are weak. <laughs> it's easy for hostile nations to sweep off a number of separate states one after the other. Witness the states in the neighborhood of ancient Rome. They were successively subdued by that ambitious city which they might have conquered with the utmost ease if they had been united. Witness the Canaanitish nations whose divided situations rendered them an easy prey. Witness England, which, when divided into separate states, was twice conquered by an inferior force. Thus, it always happens to small states and to great ones if divided, or to avoid this, they connect themselves with some powerful state. Their situation is not much better. This shows us the necessity of combining our whole force and as to national purpose becoming one state. Even, even in the debates in Connecticut, Oliver Ellsworth, one of the two men who uh, came up with the Connecticut Compromise to get the Constitution to move forward, understood that the primary purpose of the Constitution, and this is where we start seeing some things that perhaps we have not seen before, is national defense. The primary purpose of the Constitution, the primary function of putting this together was to ensure that the Union remained united and strong in the face of external threat. This is why the President is made the Commander-in-Chief, because he can act without Congress to defend the country. This is why, despite the arguments over standing armies, whether or not a standing army should be a threat to liberty as Cato writes and so forth and so on it's decided that we do need an army but the army needs to answer to the civilian control of the presidency who then is funded by Congress so that there's all these controls over what can and cannot be done we're gonna have a Navy Congress never decides you know how to build a Navy they don't decide what kind of ships we need they don't decide uh, who's gonna man these ships they just say have a Navy the Constitution says that. Congress is actually going to have to lay out all of these, these things. And, of course, Connecticut is, is a seagoing state. They see this as potentially uh, a, a, an economic benefit to uh, Connecticut. And, in fact, you'd have to argue that throughout the history of our nation, it has become something of an economic benefit to Connecticut. The submarine base at New London uh, is, is a huge uh, impact on, on that state, uh, right next to the submarine base, by the way. So you have this giant Navy submarine base there, but right next to that is uh, Electric Boat, General Electric Electric Boat uh, Division, where they build submarines. So you, you get this, you get this feeling that Connecticut understands 
what many of the other states perhaps haven't figured out yet, which is that national defense is important. Because really, if we separate ourselves or if we allow ourselves to become weak in the face of an enemy, if we, if we allow ourselves to uh, become divided, the enemy will pounce on us. Look, witness all of these other states, England, Rome, Canaan, Canaan uh, with the Israel, Israelites coming in. All of these things are dangers that are real, existential, and potentially on every border that we have. It's only union that's going to prevent this from happening. So we need to do this. Plus, there's this understanding that's so, I, I, the only word I can come up with is Connecticut-ish, this, this understanding that there's going to be economic benefit to this as well because somebody's going to have to build these ships, somebody's going to have to man this army, somebody's going to have to do all this stuff. And if the government is now in charge of maintaining these things, the, the government's going to have to pay for them. Well, this is an idea that begins to percolate in Connecticut thinking. There's another phrase here that I, I find intriguing, and that is the phrase, uh, united we're strong, divided we're weak. We're used to hearing that phrase related to Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot fall. But if you go into uh, Connecticut history, you will find in Connecticut history when they, uh, there's a, a cartoon, a, a political cartoon published in the Hartford Current, which actually talks about as the as the convention opens and so there's all these little drawings and people debating the constitution and, and across the top you know what it says a house divided against itself cannot stand it's so even even in his uh, later speeches abraham lincoln is looking back at the the concept of union from a con from a very constitutional standpoint a very um, strong understanding of what's what union is really all about and the fact that we we can't stand if we're divided and and the threats from the outside will become much much more difficult to face if we are divided I, i'm always intrigued by that because i wonder what would have happened had the nation had split in half in in 1860 and and there had been no civil war and you end up with united states and confederate states well confederacies as we know constantly fail and we know that there were potential other problems with France and Mexico. Uh, we had uh, potential of England coming into this thing on, on other people's side. You wonder how we would have survived. And the answer is, I don't know that we would have. There was a great deal of wisdom as the framers looked forward and as the states argued these things and, and un began to understand them that union was really the only way we could possibly survive. It's, it's intriguing to me, it really is. And I, the more I learn about this stuff, the more amazed I am. But the bigger debate, even as Connecticut ratifies, becomes this debate, as Cato uh, writes, and, and the, the Anti-Federalist Papers are uh, full of these kinds of, of arguments. And it, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Anti-Federalists are very specific in their arguments we don't like this particular thing, this this way of dividing the Senate, this way of electing uh, people, this way of doing uh, this particular thing, followed by this idea that the, uh, the, the, the Federalists take that different approach, which is, of course, much different in the sense of uh, we are 
looking at a much bigger picture across the board. The argument now is going to shift, and, it, and you almost sense that it starts with the Connecticut debates in early January, and by the time they ratify, uh, this debate is, is in full bloom in both the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, and that is this argument over national defense. Specifically, the Anti-Federalist position is we don't need to worry about national defense. They tend to downplay it. They tend to uh, not look at the, the situation as dangerous. Sam Adams is, of course, famous for, for, his, uh, for his dissertation about the fact that we're in perfect peace. There's no danger here. We, we have no worries. And even if, even if some foreign power, which is across the ocean, thousands of miles away, wanted to spend the time, energy, and money, very expensive, to move their army over here to attack us, well, look what we just did to, to them that did that. Now, I think that Adams kind of forgets the, the realities of the American Revolutionary War, which are that it was, a, it was not an easy thing to do. It took a great deal of, of time, six years, actually eight years when you count in the extra two. Uh, it took in a great deal of money that the states now were gravely in debt over. And most importantly, it had required not an abandonment of but a massive modification to the militia system that he so proudly pointed out had, had come together to defeat the British. Well, in, in a way it had, but it had not done so in the way that he uh, portrayed it having done so. Moreover, there were, of course, uh, British troops on the borders. There were armed Tory camps and hostile Indians and so forth and so on. But there was almost a laissez-faire attitude from the anti-federalists that, look, we can take care of them. We, you know, when I was in the service, we, uh, when I was in the Navy, we wore Cracker Jack uniforms. And, and uh, if you ever look at the flap on the jumper, the, the top back flap of that, there's two stars, one in each corner. And we were always instructed that the reason those stars were there was so that when a British sailor asked us why there were two stars, we could always say, it's because we kicked your ass twice and there's a lot more room back there. Uh, <laughs> It's, there's almost this attitude of, well, we beat them once, we can do it again. We don't, we don't really need the French anymore. By this point, the French are uh, spiraling towards their revolution and so forth and so on. The Spanish are already a third-rate power. Portuguese is in there. Russia doesn't care. Uh, there's almost this dismissive attitude towards the existential threats to America from the anti-Federalist position. But from the Federalist position, it becomes very clear that they are not concerned, they are concerned about the immediate threats that they see, but they are actually more concerned about the distant threats, the threats that cannot be seen today. They are more concerned with the idea that tomorrow we don't have any idea what the world's going to be like. And so consequently, we can't limit the government in any way, shape, or form because we do not know what these existential threats are going to be. We don't know. We don't know if a hundred years from now the threat to union will come, or 80 years from now, the threat to union will come from uh, slaveholding states. We don't know if it will come from England in just a few years from now again. We don't know if a hundred plus years from now a war in Europe will spill over in a way that draws us into it. And we certainly don't know 
if more than 20 years after that, a, a country that we don't even really know exists yet might decide to attack us to try to cripple our, our abilities to defend ourselves and might even invade us. We just don't know. We don't know what the threats of tomorrow may be. We don't know if someday religious nutballs might just decide that they're going to inflict their religion on everyone. And while as Cato, or I'm sorry, Brutus writes, the liberties of the people are in danger from a large standing army. I, keep, I think I keep attributing this to Cato, but it's Brutus. It's Brutus number 10, sorry. Uh, be, not only because rulers may employ them for the purposes of supporting themselves in any usurpation of power, which they may see proper to exercise, but there is a great hazard that an army will subvert the forms of government under whose authority they are raised and establish one according to the pleasure of their leader. Think about that in a broader term. I, I, I beg you to do so. Again, police forces are not inherently bad, but police forces are the standing army of today. And they do, are used by governments to establish policies in some cases. And moreover, while they're raised under the authority of a government, through the use of public sector unions and the likes of that, are they attempting to establish their own government and their own leadership that then enhances them with more power? You can't argue that Brutus is wrong here. He, he actually is quite right. He just didn't foresee where that would come from because these had never been heard of before. The Federalist position would be, of course, that uh, a police force is necessary to maintaining the safety and security of the state. And they would be right as well. Both sides can be right in this argument. Both sides can, in fact, have valid points. But neither side, for some reason, and I'm, and I'm not sure what this is. Maybe it's, maybe it's an assumption on their part. Maybe it's a failure to, to understand human nature on their part. I'm not sure where it falls down. But neither side seems to understand that when you give government power, you have to hold it accountable. They assume that we'll hold it accountable, but they don't necessarily seem to think that they'll stop doing this. That somehow or another, some, at some future distant point, the people will begin to not hold the government accountable. They will not hold the standing armies accountable. They won't do it. And there doesn't seem to be any mechanism in here for ensuring that they will, other than the presumption that people love liberty. Well, as Mussolini wrote in 1922, the truth is men are tired of liberty. And you have to think desperately that that may be true, given the fact that we're not holding anybody accountable anymore. I often wonder what the debates would have been, particularly in places like Connecticut or Georgia or any of these other states, had they been able to see that far into the future. The Federalist position is we don't know what the future holds. We, don't, we can't see that far. The Anti-Federalist position is there's no immediate threat, and if there's a threat tomorrow, we can deal with it. But had they been able to look forward and see what would happen to the people, as Franklin has allegedly to have said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, if they had been able to look forward, I wonder if these arguments would have been different. I wonder if they would have demanded different amendments. I wonder if they would have asked for different clarifications across the board. Alas, 
even if they had, they probably wouldn't have written it down because they didn't do that for some reason in all these debates. I'm not, not clear why, but somehow or another, they didn't think it important enough to write down everything that happened in these constitutional conventions. It's sad, it's tragic, but at the same time, it leaves as many doors open for interpretation and for questioning as it closed in the idea that they had gone ahead and ratified the Constitution of the United States as Connecticut, easily the most mellow of states anywhere in existence, did this week in 1788, becoming the fifth state of the required nine to ratify the Constitution of the United States. And I'll throw in a travel plug. If you ever get the chance to go to Connecticut, you should. It's a beautiful state. And I recommend it in wintertime, although it's really cold. <laughs> but it is really, really beautiful. Connecticut ratifies the Constitution in 1788, the fifth state to do so. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.